0: We'll be starting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting from verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Next passage comes from Matthew chapter 3, starting from verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Our loving God, who is three in one,
1: we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Father, please help us to understand who you are. Help us to appreciate uh, who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we pray that as we uh, wrestle with these uh, complex but rich truths, that this would help us uh, to understand you uh, deeper Uh, and to enrich our worship of you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So as we mentioned, we're beginning a new sermon series this morning called Worshiping the Triune God. Uh, Our regular diet in our Sunday sermons is to preach uh, from one book of the Bible at a time, passage by passage. And the idea is that throughout the year, we'll aim to preach from both the Old and the New Testaments and from different types of biblical texts. And we do this because we believe the whole Bible is God's Word to us, pointing us to the gospel message of Jesus and leading us to salvation through faith in Him. And so we want to preach from every part of the Bible, uh, not just the bits that are interesting or easier to understand or easier to teach or bits that are trendy at the moment. Uh, So we want to preach from all parts of the Bible. But about once a year, we like to spend a sermon series preaching about what the whole Bible has to say about a particular topic or area of theology. Now, often these topics come up in our regular preaching, Well, uh, we don't normally have the time or the space to delve into what the whole Bible has to say about those topics every time they come up when we preach passage by passage, uh, which is why we like to switch things up every now and then uh, and preach on a whole topic from parts of the Bible rather than preach on a whole passage about parts of a topic. And so for this sermon series, we're going to be preaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you might be thinking, why does the Trinity matter? Why does the Trinity matter? If you know anything about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, then you know it is very tempting to put this doctrine into the too-hard basket. We can be a little scared, even a little bit embarrassed about the Trinity, especially when we attempt to explain it to our non-Christian friends. And you might find yourself thinking uh, that this whole thing about the Trinity doesn't even really matter. As long as I have faith in Jesus, that's all that counts, right? Well, let me ask you a question. And actually, I want, I want you to, yeah, with the people around you, if you don't know them, introduce yourself to them. And uh, I want you to discuss this question. Get your thoughts with the people around you. Uh, the question is this. Ooh. Must you believe in the Trinity to be saved? Must you believe in the Trinity to be saved? Honey, you chat with the people around you, introduce yourself, and ask, ask each other this question. Must you believe in the Trinity to be saved? All right, let's come back together. Must you believe in the Trinity to be saved? Uh, uh, let's not just discuss on our Let's consult uh, some other uh, uh, pieces of uh, words to see uh, what they say. The, I've got an excerpt here from the opening of a paragraph of the Athanasian Creed. Have you ever heard of the Athanasian Creed? Uh, This creed, along with the Nicene Creed and uh, the Apostles' Creed, I'm sure most of you have heard of the Apostles' Creed, uh, all those three creeds are widely accepted as, as a good summary of the biblical Christian faith. Now, the opening paragraph of the Athanasian Creed says this, Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Uh, the Athanasian Creed appears to say that if you do not believe in the Trinity, then you are not saved. Uh, now, uh, those words are a little bit complex. How, how about something a bit simpler, a bit more modern? Uh, let's try this statement. We believe in the triune God. There is one God, infinite, eternal, almighty, and perfect in holiness, truth, and love. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-existent, co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, yet each is truly God. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the foundation of Christian faith. And life. Does anyone recognize where this is from? Is anyone? No? Well, it's the first point in SLE's Church's <laughs> statement of beliefs. Um, and you can see on the screenshot of our website there, or all of the scripture references from the Bible that support this statement. And what this statement essentially is saying is that belief in the triune God is the foundation of Christian life and faith. So, must you believe in the Trinity to be saved? Uh, Well, I would say yes. Now, I suspect most of us would say that we are saved by faith in Jesus. And I want to say that that is true. You are saved by faith in Jesus. But if you think about it, in order to have faith that Jesus died for your sins, you need to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. You need to believe that God raised His Son from the dead. And you need to recognize that you can only confess and believe and have faith by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Faith in Jesus is a triune faith. So yes, I think you must believe in the Trinity to be saved. But must you fully comprehend the Trinity to be saved? Must you fully comprehend the Trinity to be saved? And I want to say, thankfully, no. You don't need to be able to explain how it is that God, uh, that God is both three in one, nor do you need to understand complicated theological Trinitarian words like usia and hypostasis or perichoresis or the imminent Trinity versus the economic Trinity or the possessions versus the missions of the Trinity. You don't have to understand any of that all you need to know is what is in the SLE church statement. (laughs) Or, to put it even more simply, you need to believe these seven things. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. If you understand that, And you believe in that, you believe in the triune God. You must believe in the triune God to be saved. But you need not fully comprehend His triunity to be saved. Now, some of you might hear that and go, great, I get all that, my head's already starting to hurt, uh, and I don't want to bother myself uh, with all these other abstract theological concepts about the Trinity. Now, can I say to you, if you're tempted to think that, can I encourage you to persevere, persevere over these next six weeks? Because the Trinity is not some abstract theological concept. It is who God is. When we are talking about the Trinity, we're not just talking about something that only theologians talk about. We are talking about the one true living God. And so it will be worthwhile for us to ponder and meditate upon the Trinity, because that will lead us to a deeper appreciation of the God we worship. Uh, But some of you might not be like that at all. Uh, In fact, you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum. You might love the fact that we're doing something deep and theological. You relish the opportunity to learn more and to add to your theological understanding. Now, if that's you, then can I gently remind and warn you that knowledge can puff up. Remember, we're not dealing with abstract theological concepts. We're getting to know the one true living God. As we deepen our understanding of Him, remember that this is so that our worship of Him might be enriched. Doing theology Ought not to lead to bloated minds, but to changed hearts, to transformed lives, to an outpouring of praise to the God we worship. This is why our sermon series is titled, Worshiping the Triune God. We're preaching through the doctrine of the Trinity, but the goal is to enrich and deepen our worship of the triune God. Uh, So keep that in mind as we go through over these next six weeks, Uh, and let's now get stuck into today's topic. This sermon today is all about worshipping the triune God who is one. Now, I only figured out a few days ago that the phrase, the triune God is one, is a little bit redundant, and that's because I thought the word triune meant three, because I had the word tri in it. But it turns out the word triune comes from the Latin tri, which does mean three, and the Latin unus, which means one. And so triune actually means three and one, or three in one. And to say, so to say the triune God who is one is like to say the three in one God is one, which is kind of a bit repetitive. But anyway, that's my mistake. Uh, the point is, today we're going to be fo- focusing on both God's oneness and His threeness. Uh, firstly, we'll be introducing some words and concepts that will help us wrap our head around how God can be both three and one, and we're going to think be uh, thinking about how it is we can know that, God, uh, know that God is these things. And then we'll look at parts of the Bible that express these ideas for us uh, to double-check that what we're thinking isn't out of step with what the Bible says. And finally, we'll reflect on what implications this then has for our worship. Uh, So firstly, who and what is the God we worship? If you can figure out who God is and what God is, then that will help us understand how it is that God is both three and one. Uh, now, Aiden did an excellent job of this in the kids' spot and explained, and basically just took all of my material from this section. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna rush through all of these things. We already heard this from the kids' spot. God is both uh, God is one what, and three whos. Uh, his whatness is that he is God. He is divine. Uh, he's not divine in the sense that when we eat a delicious meal we go that was divine. Uh, he is divine in the sense that he is God. Divine is godness. Um, we are human beings. God is divine being. Uh, God is also three who's. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, I am Richard. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so to summarize, you and I, we are one what and one who. Uh, God is one what and three who's. God is what? God is divine. Not divine, but God divine. Who is God? God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this from the Bible. And shortly, we, look, we will look at some pa- Bible passages that help us point uh, to these ideas. Uh, but before we go there, I wanna, we need to take a, a brief theological pit stop to consider the question of how we can know God. You see, there is a difference between us and God. God is the infinite creator of the universe, uh, and we are His finite creatures. And so there are things about God that we cannot know or see simply because they are beyond our ability to comprehend or understand. Uh, and it's kind of like uh, there's this huge divide between us and God. That's kind of, that's why I try to represent with that dotted line. There's this divide between us and God. Because God is creator, we are creatures. There's this huge divide of understanding, of knowledge, of, of um, you know, comprehension between us and God. And the important thing is that there is nothing that we can do for us to cross that divide, for us to know God because He is Creator. So how is it then that we can know anything about God at all? Well, it's not because we've, uh, we've grown smart enough, we've, um, we've, we've advanced enough to be able to overcome this divide and understand God. No, we can know anything about God because God is gracious enough to cross this divide Himself and reveal who He is to us. How does God reveal Himself to us in the world? Uh, well, in one sense, it's simple. It is by what He says and by what He does. God reveals Himself by His words and by His actions in the world. Now, it's a little bit how like we know each other, right? You know, we, we know each other uh, by by speaking, by, by acting, and we can get to know each other this way. But there is a difference between how we reveal ourselves in what we say and do to each other and how God reveals himself to us in the world. And the difference is, is that humans are capable of saying and doing things that are contrary to what is actually true and real. Now, I could say to you that I am a Brisbane Broncos fan, and I could act like one tonight uh, when they play in the grand final, but I could be lying, and because of that, my words and actions can never truly accurately represent who I am. Now, if I were a Broncos fan, then that would, that would be true, but you can't know, you can't be sure, right? Right? Not so with God. God does not lie. He cannot... Actually, He is incapable of lying. He cannot separate who He truly is from what He says and does. Which means we can know who God is by what He says and what He does in the world. Because His words and actions are a perfect articulation of his identity and character. And this is one of the realities implied by God's name. Uh, Back in Exodus chapter 3, when uh, God is speaking with Moses, God actually reveals his name to Moses. He reveals his name as, I am who I am. You can look that up in Exodus 3 later on. Uh, And in the Bible, this I am who I am name is shortened to Yahweh, Uh, which is the the Hebrew shortening of I am who I am, which in our English Bibles uh, is represented by the Lord, and the Lord is in all caps. Every time you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's actually uh, the word Yahweh, which is the shortened form of I am who I am. The Lord there is not, oh, he is, you know, our Lord, but he is. But like not, not in the sense of his role or his title, that's actually his name. His name uh, says that what He says and what He does is who He is. God's name is a reminder that God is who He is. What He says and what He does is who He is. And what He does and what He says is never out of step with who He is. And so we can know God because He has crossed the creator-creature divide by speaking and acting in this world, and he does so in ways in which we humans can see and understand in our creatureliness. And one of the things we can understand because of this is that God is triune. Now, to be clear, we can only ever understand uh, these things to the extent that our limited human minds can comprehend them. Uh, we're never going to be able to fully grasp the great mystery, infinite mysteries of, of who God is. But we can understand these things to an extent. You know, we can, uh, this means that we can never fully understand the inner workings of the triune God, who God is within Himself, because that's something that belongs on the Creator side of the divide. But we can still know something of His triune nature within Himself because His triune action in the world reveals and represents these inner workings to us. Do you get that? We can't know who God is uh, fully within Himself, but we can know uh, some of it from what He does in the world because He is what He says and what He does. Uh, And this is why, uh, for the rest of our sermon series, uh, we'll be focusing on God's triune actions in the world. Over the coming weeks, uh, we're going to explore how God speaks, how He creates, how He saves, how He loves, and how He sends. And as we do, we'll see how these triune actions reveal and help us understand the triune God that we worship. Okay, Theological pit stop over. Deep breath. Uh, with that heavy lifting done, let's now turn our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5, and we're going to consider God's oneness. Now, uh, uh, in God's providence, we've actually just spent our last sermon series going through uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, and in Deuteronomy, we saw God speak his covenant word through Moses to the people of Israel. In this covenant word, God reveals his character and his purposes, and he calls on his people Israel to respond in love and obedience. Now, one of the most significant things that God speaks through Moses is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, and, And it's this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, remember how all caps Lord uh, stands for God's name, Yahweh, which is short for I am who I am? That's what's happening here. What God caused Israel to hear about uh, Yahweh their God is that Yahweh is one. Now, what does it mean for Yahweh to be one? Well, I take it that it simply means that there is only one God. There is only one God, and Yahweh is that one God. And that's why Moses goes on to command, in verse 5, uh, command Israel to love Yahweh their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. Because there are no other gods to love and worship. That's why the first commandment, uh, that God gives to his people is that they shall have no other gods before Yahweh because there are no other gods besides him. Now, according to the rest of Deuteronomy, the consequence for turning to other gods who don't actually exist, well, turning to other gods and worshiping these non existent gods, is the curse of exile. The punishment is severe. Because worshipping other gods is essentially saying that you reject Yahweh as the one and only true God. And we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament uh, that the people of Israel do indeed turn to worship other gods. And their eventual exile is yet another demonstration of the fact that Yahweh God is the one and only true God. God's Word reveals to us that He is one. And His actions throughout the Old Testament also reveal to us that He is one. Now, what does this mean for our understanding of the triune God? Well, it means that when we say God is one what, and that whatness is divine nature, It means that there is no other with a nature that is divine. There are not two gods or three gods or multiple gods. There is only one whose nature is divine. And that is Yahweh, the one and only true God. So that's God's oneness. Let's turn now to consider God's threeness. How is the one and only true God also three? Uh, you, you might uh, want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Um, I'll do that now as well. Matthew chapter 3. Now, um, there are hints of God's plurality in the Old Testament. There are hints that God uh, has, uh, has more than one. Uh, in our uh, Genesis creation account, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's a very interesting sort of drop there that isn't really explained in that creation account. Uh, but th- there's a hint there that God is not just one. Uh, there are also references to the Spirit of God at work. Uh, we see a reference to the Spirit of God in the account of creation and also throughout the Old Testament as the Spirit works within God's people. There are even also hints of a sun figure who enjoys the same power and the same authority as God. Uh, There are hints of God's plurality in the Old Testament. But it is not until the coming of Jesus uh, in the New Testament that God's threeness is fully revealed. And we see an example of this in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes to John the Baptist in order to be baptized by him. Uh, Now, read with me from verse 16. And notice how the hints of God's plurality in the Old Testament come together in this moment. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. At Jesus' baptism, we hear a voice from heaven. And heaven, in this sense, means the dwelling place of God. Uh, The voice we hear is the voice of the Father, who declares Jesus to be his beloved Son. We also see the Spirit of God descend from that same dwelling place, from heaven, from the Father, and come to rest on Jesus, His beloved Son. There is a triadic pattern here, a threeness pattern here. Uh, We see this revealed, God as Father, Son, and Spirit, But the baptism of Jesus isn't the only place we encounter God's threeness. Uh, At the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus commissions his disciples with all the authority in heaven and on earth given to him. He commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that Jesus uses the singular for name, not the plural. He doesn't say baptize them in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. That's because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same divine name. And that name is none other than Yahweh. I am who I am the name of the one and only true God. Now, these two passages in Matthew are the clearest and most explicit places where we encounter God's threeness. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, it is apparent uh, that the New Testament writers talk about God with this Father, Son, Spirit threeness in mind. Uh, we see, if you read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll get hints of this of, of threeness. Uh, trinitarian language so the new testament presents god uh, as one but with a pattern of three and so we're left with a problem to solve how does god's revealed threeness reconcile with god's revealed oneness how does god's threeness reconcile with god's revealed oneness now, the Bible itself doesn't give us the words or concepts to actually reconcile this uh, using the language of the Bible. Uh, which is why centuries of faithful Christian engagement with the Bible uh, and, and, and theologizing have helped us to come up with words and concepts uh, that are not found in the Bible, but are nevertheless uh, helpful for us to express biblical ideas. And one of those words is the word Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but it's a word that uh, theologians have come up with to express biblical truths. Now, these centuries of theologizing helped us come up with the word Trinity, but also have helped us to reconcile God's threeness and oneness by recognizing uh, what we were introduced to earlier, the idea that God is one what and three who's. We've already spoken about the whatness, the divineness uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. What about the who's? Well, starting from the language of the New Testament, we need to ask what words or concepts can we use to capture this triadic pattern of Father, Son, and Spirit? What what words or concepts could we use to to capture that pattern? Well, the early theologians have helped us see that what characterizes these uh, this threeness the father son spirit pattern is the idea of relations you think about it the father son and spirit all relate to each other in a way that is distinct from the others the father is relates to the son as father he is the father of the son and actually the father is the father of the son not the other way around. The Son is not the Father of the Father. The Father is the Father of the Son. The Son is the Son of the Father, not the other way around. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son, not the other way around. You see, there are, there are distinct relationships, uh, distinct relations between these three, uh, the three people that we see. And so the theologians and the theologians the came up with the word persons. Uh, the word persons to capture the idea of these relational realities. Each person of the Trinity is distinct in the way in which he relates to the others. And each person of the Trinity has a personal name. They all share the same divine name, that that's the name that comes out of his whatness, but they all have a personal name. And each of their personal names captures their relationship with the other persons of the trinity and so their names are father son and spirit their personal names reflect the fact that they are persons and these personal names reflect their relation their distinct relations with the other persons so god's threeness is personhood god's oneness is is, is nature, is being, it's essence, it's substance. Uh, that, that's, how, that's the sort of words and concepts that uh, theologians have helped us to understand. Now, I just before we get carried, idea, uh, carried away with the idea of persons, uh, because we understand the word persons, right? Um, and, and it can be very easy for us to import our idea of personhood onto God. Uh, but I want to make a few brief caveats that, uh, to think about personhood within the Godhead. Uh, the first is that God, the personhood of God is a divine personhood, not a human personhood. The personhood of God is a divine personhood, not a human personhood. Like I said, we cannot import our human ideas of experiences of being persons, of, of, of fathers, of sons, of spirits. We can't import those ideas onto God's divine personhood. Um, To do that would be to to do theology the wrong way around. In fact, the personhood of God is what informs our understanding of our human personhood, not the other way around. That's the first thing. Uh, God has divine personhood, not human personhood. Second, each divine person is fully God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But this doesn't mean that there are three gods. Uh, Sometimes our experience of human persons, of human personhood, uh, can lead us to think that the Father, the Son, and Spirit are three distinct gods. Uh, But that's not true. In fact, that would be committing the heresy of tritheism. But they are three distinct divine persons who are one God. So this doesn't mean there are three gods. This also doesn't mean that each divine person is only a part of God. You know, each, divine, each divine person has the whatness of God. Each bears the divine name Yahweh. And so each is fully God, but that there is only one God. You get that? Each divine person is fully God. There is not three gods. Each divine person is not a part of God. They are all fully God. Each divine person is fully God. Thirdly, human persons are distinguished on a variety of levels. Uh, Our relationships distinguish us. Uh, My mom is not your mom, right? Uh, Our character distinguishes us. We're different, you know, MBTI profiles and Enneagrams, all that sort of stuff. Our personality distinguishes us. Our likes and dislikes, our desires and our will. The divine persons, on the other hand, are distinct only by their relations to each other. They don't have different personalities, different levels of godness, different levels of existence. And very importantly, they don't have different wills. SLE's statement of beliefs affirms that they are coexistent, uh, which means they are always together. Then They can never be separated. They are co-equal, which means that there is no rank, no hierarchy, no differentiation of will uh, between the persons. They are co-eternal, which means they have all always existed at all times at the same time. And fourthly, the divine persons never act independently or in isolation. And that's because the divine persons have the one divine nature. And this divine nature is the source of God's character and also of God's will. And so all three divine persons share the same divine will, which means all of God's triune actions in the world, while they're triune, they're undivided and they're inseparable. God acts with the same divine will. Each person acts undivided, unseparated from the other divine persons. So this is how Christians have classically reconciled God's threeness and His oneness. God is one what in three who's? He is one God who is three distinct divine persons, He is three divine persons who are all of the same divine nature and thus all one God. This is the triune God we worship. And now there's more to say over the next five weeks as we unpack God's triune, undivided actions in the world uh, and as we deepen our understanding of Him. Uh, But for now... Um, I'm not going to preach all six sermons at once. We're going to leave that for the next few weeks. For now, I just want to share with you three brief reflections on what God's triune nature means for us today. Three brief reflections. Firstly, God's triune nature ought to humble us and cause us to be thankful You see, on our own, we are unable to comprehend God and His triunity. It takes God Himself to cross the creature-creator divide and graciously make Himself known to us. He does this through His words and actions to us as they culminate ultimately in the coming of Jesus, God the Son incarnate. Who reveals in himself and his saving work God's triune nature and purpose for the world. And when we comprehend this triune nature, we recognize that God is actually complete and perfect love within himself. He doesn't he doesn't need us. He has no need for us, no need for his creation. He has no need uh, to to create his creation, it's not like God was lonely and was like, oh, let's create some humans to be with. Like, God is, God is complete within himself. But out of his good pleasure, he creates the world. And out of his sheer grace, he makes himself known so that we can know him. God's trying nature ought to humble us and cause us to be thankful. Reflection number two. God's oneness means He is the only true God, and thus we ought to worship only Him. No other God or idol deserves or demands our worship because there is no other God. And so if you are worshiping anyone or anything other than the one God who is infinite, eternal, almighty, and perfect in holiness, truth, and love, whether that's in your thoughts or in your actions or in your priorities or in your desires, even if it's just a little bit, then that is cause for confession and an opportunity for repentance. Our knowledge of God through the gospel of Jesus, invites us and requires us to worship the one true God, to worship only Him, to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God's oneness means He is the only true God, and thus we ought to worship only Him. A third reflection God's threeness means that he is personal. He is personal within himself. The three persons of the Godhead are distinct in their relations to one another, and these relations are reflected in their personal names, Father, Son, and Spirit. Knowing the triune God through the gospel of Jesus means that we can relate to God personally too. Uh, there is a, um, there's a benediction that Paul gives at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, uh, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Uh, have you ever kind of stopped to reflect on that? You can, have, you can enjoy communion with God the Father in love. You can enjoy communion with God the Son in grace. You can enjoy communion with God the Spirit in fellowship, in comfort, in consolation. You can relate to the triune God. You see, the triune God is not some dis, uh, distant, impersonal concept. He is someone that you have the privilege to relate to. Because in making himself known to us in the gospel of Jesus, he invites you into loving and saving relationship with Him. Uh, it's kind of like how sometimes uh, when you're engaging online on your phone uh, with, with, with comments or with vlogs or whatever, uh, you kind of disengage the, the content from the people behind it. You, you engage with people online uh, you know, as if there's just an idea or whatever. But when, you, uh, when you do that, you need to remember that On the other side of the screen, on the other side of that comment, on on the other side of that video, is a person. Likewise, perhaps when we come to read the Bible, you need to remember that on the other side of these words is the tri-personal God, the God who has invited you into loving and saving relationship with Him. Friends, my hope and prayer over these next few weeks is that we will dig deep into these truths of God in order that we might appreciate afresh the wonder and grace of the triune God, the one who invites us to know Him, to worship Him, and to be in relationship with Him. Amen.